Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we are very lucky to be joined by, and I should have said this, I should have asked this off off air, uh, Dan Ab- Abramoff? Yeah, yeah, Abramoff. hi. Got it perfectly, thank you very much. <laughs> How are things going, Dan? Uh, pretty well. I'm I'm actually going to England soon because uh, I got a job at Facebook. I think, yeah, and... I've been looking at your Twitter yesterday and I noticed the uh, visa and I was thinking, oh, hang on, London, yeah. England, I thought this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, uh, I don't know, it's maybe uh, silly, but I was pretty nervous about this whole visa business because, you know, you invest in something uh, like some process that spans over multiple months and at the end you might not get the visa. So <laughs> I'm really that is happy it. I There's so it. many moving parts I can imagine that you've yeah. got to work with, yeah. And it's all come together, which is great. Well, congratulations on that. So you're going to be moving to London then, working at Facebook? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's great. Well, I'll hopefully see you at some meetups. Like I said, over Twitter, it'd be great <laughs> to, you know, catch up. It'd be great. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, for, for the audience, so uh, Dan is of, well, Redux or Flux kind of fame, as well as React Hotloader. Um, these are technologies I've been banging on about in previous episodes. I've been working on in my day job. We've, we've started using React and Flux and these technologies and I suppose uh, for me, kind of bringing you on and, and, you know, it's kind of to have like an expert in the field of all this, because, um, I mean, how long have you been using uh, Flux and React and things like that? Uh, I think I started using React uh, maybe two years ago. Um, yeah, I would say so. Two years ago it was. Brilliant. And and I suppose rewinding all the way back to the beginning, like how did you actually get started in programming? What was your kind of foray into it? Uh, you mean like uh, how I started programming at all? That's it, yeah. Straight from yeah. the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I was uh, about 12 years old and uh, I, I wasn't like... Um, my friends, they all had computers by the time they were nine, but um, my family actually didn't want me to to buy a computer because uh, they were afraid I'd spend all the time playing games. And I, I was playing a lot of games back then on Sony PlayStation, so um, their fears were justified. <laughs> they they uh, had evidence but, that could have... Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, when I got the computer, um, I had problems with keyboard. I, I didn't really like to play games with keyboard. I was used to Sony joystick. So um, I didn't play games. And um, I remember I had an assignment in school... Um, we uh, we had lessons about Microsoft Office, and we had uh, I had a, some assignment uh, related to PowerPoint. I was supposed to make a presentation about something, and I remember PowerPoint being my favorite app of all because I could um, uh, like tell things to animate and the transitions. schedule animations. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, like when you click on this item, it, it slides uh, to the left and then something happens. So this kind of stuff, I was very interested in that. And one day I discovered um, a menu item called uh, Service Macros. And I didn't really understand what's going on, but there was a record button and the play button. And when I, uh, I could record some actions on the slide and then I press play and they repeat themselves. And I was like, what's that? And I press edit and I see a bunch of English words 
and numbers. And if I change the numbers, then uh, the things fly in uh, different directions. So I was really mesmerized by this. And um, I, I saw the title uh, Visual Basic for Applications on the Windows. So I uh, went to some bookshop and I bought a book on the Visual Basic for Applications. And then every weekend I would ask my grandma to go with me uh, to a bookshop and I would buy the next book. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's how I started. That's great. And, and, and then through that, did you then do like uh, go through, you know, the uh, like learning ranks of it, educational ranks going like to university and things like that? Or did you just Go off into your no, own good. Uh, I, I tried to do that. Um, I I entered the university um, in Saint Petersburg, the same place where I lived, and yeah, I kind of I, di I didn't really like it at first. I was hoping that um, it would be more about programming in the future, but they had uh, the same uh, curriculum uh, for all students. So uh, the first few years were the same for pretty much everyone. So there wasn't much programming there. And by the end of the first year, I was really um, not much interested in visiting it because there was a lot of math, a lot of physics and barely any programming. And so at the second year, I just stopped going there. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, you wanted to be appropriate going because you, you have your heart set then on programming uh, as like a. Yeah, <laughs> I, I got my first job at the end uh, of the first year when I turned uh, 18. So after I got a job, I was like, uh, hey, that's the real thing. And what I'm doing at the university, that's just, I don't know. That's <laughs> not for artificial. you, not for you. <laughs> yeah. And and then so from that, what what technologies were you using then in, like, well, in the beginning of your career? When I started, it was all Visual Basic because that's just what I started from. And um it was kind of hard at first because uh, everybody kept saying like, hey, that's not a real language, right? Uh, go, uh, go and learn C. <laughs> yeah. Go and, <laughs> and learn I, this. <laughs> yeah, and I bought a, I actually bought a book on C++ uh, by Charles Sharp and that was a, a really horrible decision because uh, he's not, it's not really a book for learning it. It's, it scares uh, the crap out of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so... Uh, that that didn't help at all, uh, and I think later uh, Visual Basic was discontinued. Uh, they had this Visual Basic .NET transition, with a, which is a whole different language. And by the time .NET shipped, uh, I kind of started looking at C Sharp, and um, eventually I got comfortable with it. So I spent the next uh, several years uh, working with C Sharp. So I was working on desktop apps first. And uh, then I got a job. I was working on some outsourcing projects, so like for financial companies, uh, boring enterprise stuff. Uh, <laughs> and later I got into a startup where I used C Sharp uh, to make an iPad app uh, using Xamarin. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, so it's native, but uh, I was writing it in C Sharp. And at the time, it was a hybrid app, so I also had to learn some JavaScript uh, and uh, eventually we um, uh, discontinued the iPad app uh, and we were working on the web version. So I really had to learn JavaScript. <laughs> that that was where, yeah, completely. And, and the back end of that, was that ASP.NET that you were using? Uh, no, or? I didn't. we were using Python because that's what the back end guy uh, knew well. So we, I kind of had to uh, learn bits of Python, although I still don't understand a lot there. Like, Significant I, I white space, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
but I get comfortable with JavaScript eventually. And that's it. So yeah, so you got into the JavaScript session. Did you like? There was no going back. Now you kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, it's it's a life hate relationship, I guess. <laughs> and right now, I think I'm in the love phase because uh, after you kind of get all the most of the quirks, I, I can say that I really know it. Like you know, this website, uh, uh, you don't know JavaScript uh, something. Like yep. it's a, it's a book, uh, and uh, I tried to. Uh, I was like, yeah, I know it, and I tried to go through some exercises, and and I realized, no, I, I don't really, I don't really know it. But if you learn to avoid these edge cases where you just need to read the spec to know the behavior, uh, it's kind of a nice language um, in a way. Did you find that it's that, not that too bad? <laughs> <laughs> did you find that Douglas Cropford's book yeah, helped you at all? Did you read the Good Parts book that kind uh, of helped solidify I, I it? I haven't read it. Uh, I just uh, I just went along with what people were using, like JS Hint and JS Lint and l- yep. uh, later ES Lint. So I kind of know that part of JavaScript, and I try not not to think of, about conversions, uh, all that implicit stuff. No, absolutely, absolutely, and then, and then so from that, then so you so you kind of transitioned from the C sharp one. Did you actually enjoy C sharp going back for that? Like, did, were you a yeah. fan of the C? Yeah, you enjoyed. Yeah, it. I, yeah, I enjoyed a lot of it. Um, I, I did not enjoy Java at all when I looked at it, but I really enjoyed how the C sharp and the .NET team how they were taking some functional concepts yeah. uh, like link. It's uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that yeah. really is great. Yeah, and on the other hand, they were never uh, like architectural astronauts. They always uh, they always thought about the common uh, guy or girl. Like, uh, if we take these concepts, how do we make them them accessible? How That's do it. we uh, make the pragmatic uh, approach on it? Like, how yeah, can we exactly. use this in the yeah. real world? Like uh, th- this part doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to understand it, so we're, we're not doing it. No, that's I, cool. I, yeah, it is very cool, and and I find that that language C sharp really does move a lot quicker than its competitor, which you know yeah. Java. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and 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 did you enjoy like Visual Studio? Because I think that's one thing with C sharp that I loved is is the tooling around it because they own the whole ecosystem. They can make yeah. such good tooling. Yeah, I think um, there were some parts of it that I didn't understand at all, like. When it got all drag and droppy with uh, all yep. these data objects, <laughs> you drag yeah, and drop. That, that, those abstractions were very, <laughs> yeah, they were annoying. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's, it would be trying to make it too like simple, and as you say, drag and drop, where really yeah, you just wanted some code work. behind it. <laughs> uh, I was refactoring a complex application once uh, when I was at my outsourcing job. So we got some uh, legacy app that was written by some folks who didn't really know the language much, and they dragged on top everything. (laughs) It was a horrible mess. Oh, dear. Yeah, the code that's generated by that is not, yeah, and it just makes it a lot harder. Yeah, but, yeah, I was saying that, uh, but it's great to have tooling. Um, I think after some... um, after a while, I stopped reading books on programming because they j- just couldn't catch up to the tools. Yep. So the way I explored the APIs was from the Visual Studio itself. So like when they shipped the link, uh, I would uh, press, uh, uh, I declare uh, an enumerable uh, variable and I press uh, dot and I see all the methods that I can call and I can uh, see the documentation for every that's method. It. And then you that can was experiment huge. with it. And that's the great thing. And you're able to like really hands on experience of using it as opposed to this kind of, yeah, you know, tutorial way in books and stuff and being able to just do it at there and then. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, I kind of miss it. Uh, I don't use uh, IDEs anymore. I just use Sublime Text. And I uh, it was painful at first, but then I got used to it. And now uh, I'm feeling like I don't need an ID. But <laughs> I, I think I'm kidding myself because it would be really beneficial if I could use strong type. I think type that's and... it, isn't it? Yeah, it's that. And um, Well, a registered version of Sublime, we should say. If people yes. don't yet, yeah, do, you do have a registered version. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I do have it. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the uh, people putting the show notes, the uh, video. <laughs> <laughs> the worst timing wasn't it had to be the worst timing. you're like oh great no i do have one it's not a joke here oh dear yeah. but um so see so with the javascript stuff then so was it vanilla javascript at first um that you know you kind of just just you know the hodgepodge of jquery or was it really a structured backbone kind of application to start off with that you kind of work with uh i think my first attempt to do something uh i, I don't uh I didn't actually use JavaScript at first. I used CoffeeScript. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, it was popular, and I kind of thought that, like, JavaScript is horrible. I'm going to use something better, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, and did you go... Uh, did you find... How fine, How quick did you realize, I want to go back to just vanilla JavaScript, or was... Uh, you after happy not in the... looking at the code for six months and getting back to it. Yeah. I think... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the time when um, I was already... Um, I think we had a new team team member at the time, and uh, he was more experienced in JavaScript than I was. And he was like, hey, you're doing it all wrong. You're supposed to use grunt and uh, linters and all this stuff, all the tooling to catch your mistakes. Like, you don't, you don't have to write the JavaScript uh, like you did in 1999 anymore. <laughs> you have and, all this uh, tooling around it that you can use. Yeah, and after that, I realized that, yeah, I, I should just use JavaScript. And then was that JavaScript uh, ES5 uh, and then you were able to then do ES6 and stuff like that or were you... Yeah, yeah. we started with ES5. Um, I think the first time we built something complex with it, um, it was my first JavaScript app and it was using Backbone uh, because I kind of knew Backbone it wasn't hard to learn. Uh, so we used it for models and for views, and but it got really complicated because we had a lot of asynchronous stuff. We had a lot of uh, asynchronous UI code, like when you wait for some popover to close and then you need to transition to another route, which needs to load some models to display. So it's gotten really messy. Uh, there were a lot of edge cases, uh, a lot of uh, bugs that are hard to reproduce. So I think that was the time when uh, this uh, same co-worker suggested that we use React. And I looked at React and I didn't understand a thing like the JSX. Uh, it's <laughs> it blew, blows your mind when you first look at it, doesn't it? It does feel completely foreign. Yeah, it was bonkers. I thought, no, no way we're using it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think... Um, in a few months, uh, I had this uh, particular task. Um, like we didn't set up for any kind of rewrite. Um, the coworker suggested we use Angular, but I wasn't comfortable with it because I didn't know it. So uh, I just kept on using Backbone. And then I had this task where I have uh, several widgets that are in different parts of the page, and they're supposed to uh, when I press on one widget it's supposed to update the state of another one and they all have multiple states so it's and you very were crying hard. thinking that you were gonna have to do this all in backbone you thought oh no <laughs> yeah we had very uh, rudimentary system for uh data binding like really 
stupid system uh, we had data attributes and uh, um, like data uh, field uh, equals some field and uh, if it changes our base backbone view was supposed to re-render that part of the template and replace uh, the dumb node but it was really dumb and it didn't work at scale so when I had this complicated task I was uh, I was looking at react again and I tried to prototype in it in react and it worked uh, the first evening and this was the point where I realized, yeah, I want to make it, I want to write code like this. I want to write if something returns some div or returns some other div and let React figure out how let it to do the render. hard stuff. Absolutely. Yes. And so this was on top of Backbone then. You were using uh, Backbone as your model layer and then using React just for the view. Yeah. That was, all, yeah. yeah. And, and you felt, and did you start then bringing that more into the company and eventually take over the world with React? Yeah, exactly. Um, we... We started using React uh, in the uh, dynamic uh, UI and in uh, any new UI, but we didn't change the old code unless we had to. But eventually, uh, it started propagate uh, up the tree, so to say. So uh, if you got three components that are React components, it's pretty simple to turn their parent into React component. So React kind of uh, propagated uh, up our component tree, and uh, the only missing piece was the router, because um, there was a React router component by uh, Andrew Pop, but uh, we couldn't get it to work with our URL structure. And uh, so we just waited for something to pop up, and then uh, React router came out, and I took a weekend and ported it to React Router. So the only missing piece uh, after that was switching from Backbone because actually Backbone got really painful uh, at the time even for models. And uh, we were waiting for something to come up. And then we saw the presentation about Flux and I was like, yeah, that's This it. is that's it, I'm sold. Yeah, so, this, so is it. this is it. So, so going back a bit actually, so React. So what is React for a complete beginner? What would you say React is? I would say um, it's if a beginner uh, is aware of other JavaScript libraries, uh, sure he might be familiar with Angular or Ember that have these base uh, class libraries. Like they have all sorts of uh, their own syntax yep. for templates, and they all uh, they have all sorts of components like built-in components. Uh, directives in Angular, if I'm not mistaken, and all these things have their own APIs. So that's not the case with React. Uh, with React, you only have like 10 methods that you need to remember. It's a very tiny API surface, uh, so you don't need to Google it all the time. And the idea of React is that instead of um, is instead of writing your uh, DOM changes by hand, like when some model changes. I'm going to update uh, this uh, part of the DOM. Instead, you write uh, your code uh, as functions, like how does the DOM look? How is it supposed to look given the current application state? So you can write code like uh, if some condition, then I'm going to return a div with a P inside and some link. Or if, it's, uh, it's, if this condition is false, I'm going to return some other DOM element and so you describe every uh, part of your application as a reusable component that can contain other components. And every component is just a description of how the DOM should look like. And React figures out how to actually uh, transition from the uh, previous state of the DOM to the next state 
with minimal DOM, DOM operations. That's its so secret sauce, isn't it, really? That is the secret sauce of being able... It, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, it reduces your overhead, mental cognitive overhead of thinking that way. Yeah, because the biggest problem, um, like if you have uh, many states in your app, like you have a button that can be pressed, unpressed, uh, and uh, in some pending state where you can't press it and so on, you have this all these states. And if you add a new state, uh, for example, the designer asks you to, I don't know, highlight it differently for registered users, um, you're, you need to figure out how to... Um, transition to and from the state from every possible state you already have so if your code is jQuery soup you need to account for the new state uh, in every possible transition but with with react you don't need to um, write the code for these transitions you only need to write the code for the state so it's like uh, uh, an um, instead of uh, n times uh, where you need to change the code you just need to change the code once so that's Which is a, big a benefit really difference. big sell, absolutely, yeah. and and I mean uh, it's very it's very funny because it is a very pragmatic approach to it because people because you know obviously it's the view layer but then you meld data with that view. I mean you, you can look at it as a you know you, if you're using props on their own it is very pure you know the props come in the state you know the the view comes out but you can also use state within there as well. Yeah, and I, I'm just wondering because everyone. I mean, when I first looked at it, the one thing for me was, oh dear, you know, you're mi- you're mixing the view layer with your data concerns, and you know, the, the domain logic, but it kind of goes into this way of just thinking of components instead. Uh, you know, like this is a component that I can put on a page as opposed to you know strict defined layers. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how has that worked for you? Did you like mm-hmm. the way of thinking of components and being able to? Yeah, uh, I think. It's important to think about this as you think about functions, meaning that you don't have to write spaghetti code, right? Uh, and uh, a lot of people say that React uh, forces you to mix your presentation and um, and the logic, but it's I think it's the same as saying as functions force you to. Uh, mix your presentation and logic. Of course, you can put presentation and logic in a function, but you can also separate them. Yeah. And it's the same for components. You don't have to mix this. Uh, you can have components that are uh, that are only concerned with presentation, uh, that are only concerned with how this piece of data turns into a piece of UI, into DOM, or if you're writing for React Native into iOS views. Uh, but you can also have uh, the container components or uh, this is not a react term it's just arbitrary distinction but you can have these smart and dump components or uh, container components uh, people like to call them different ways uh, which are just uh, components that uh, that don't have um, any uh, dom associated with them and that only uh, provide uh, some kind of logic or uh, not even logic, probably rendering logic for other components. And it's important to note that in React, uh, one component, uh, components don't have to return DOM. They can return other components. So you don't have to wrap components into divs or something to reuse them. You can have one component that returns another component but processes uh, its props uh, to prepare them for rendering or something. And that's a really powerful pattern. 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, one thing I have found is the, the functional programming kind of it, it's slowly leaking into, you know, it's it, React has kind of allowed for this, you know, way of thinking. And, you know, pe- people take it. You do have the ability to use state, but you also lean on the tide of using props and having this idea of, you know, I pass this in, I'll get this output and it'll be the same each time. Um, and, and I suppose like for you, uh, have you done any functional programming before you came to React? Um, I think I, I learned it a little bit, um, when I was just still playing with, uh, C sharp, I got distracted by a functional language called, uh, Nemeru, if I'm not mistaken, that's how I pronounce it. It was very uh, esoteric, uh, uh, language for the net platform that had, uh, macros and a lot of uh, functional programming utilities. That's kind of how I got interested in it. And uh, I didn't really write programs in any uh, pure functional programming language. Like I don't know uh, SML or Haskell, uh, but I have an idea about them. And I try to learn new things about functional programming time after time. No, I think it's great because it, it brings, and again, it's that pragmatic approach of it's working well in this area. It's using these concepts, you know, similar to how we were talking about C Sharp, you know, bringing it to the mainstream. Yeah. It brings these concepts to the mainstream that work and, and can be shown to work. Yeah, I really like uh, Sebastian Magbush, uh, uh attitude here because uh, he's the one of the core guys in React team. Uh, he's a bit of a philosopher <laughs> and... Uh, I like his attitude that uh, he's not forcing functional programming onto anyone. And uh, he he says that it's important to educate first. So you don't really want to be all highbrow and say, hey, this is uh, our pure functional land and you're a beginner or you don't get it. So uh, you, Yeah, you have to be on this level before you can even yes, touch this. Yes, yep. and Sebastian is like, uh, no, if you need an escape hatch, it's our problem. Like we need to give you an escape hatch and we need to educate you. So this is our responsibility as framework authors. So yeah, I, I think that's really noble. I like it. It's a really great way because again, it, it allows people to make mistakes or to feel comfortable you know, while using the thing, things that they already know, the imperative paradigm, and then be able to go into a different, you know, realm and slowly build up. And I think that's a much better way than this kind of strict, you're on that level or you're on that level and there's no in between. Yes, and it's also, like you said, it's, it's important to let people make mistakes because, um, for example, I'm really opposed to mixings. Uh, they're, they're part of React traditionally, but React is slowly... Not really deprecating them, but uh, deprecating them. But it kind of tries to uh, not uh, encourage people. Well, with ES six, it seems to kind of support. It kind of is, yeah, gone away. Yeah, it's gonna it's gone away, and there um, you don't have to use ES six classes, right? But they're kind of trying to. I think they're hoping that uh, by the time there is a mixing solution for ES seven, people learn not to use mixins. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. The, the time frame. Yeah, by the time frame, yeah, they, they won't skip, you know, thinking, oh, the ES might <laughs> yes. six support, and they'll be like, oh, I can do it again. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> and so you've got React, and you've got this, you know, idea, you know, that it's a, you know, you know, this idea that you pass in state, you part, you know, and then it returns you an, a, a layer or a, a transform, well, a, a, a state in time that then at this time, you know, in the state of, you know, using it on the, you know, in the browser, the DOM will change. 
Um, you know, and I know there's been a lot of push, you know, to kind of get away from the fact that React is just for the DOM as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah, and I, sp- I think that's happening in uh, for version zero fourteen was a massive shift there where they've broken out the idea that it's just for the DOM. Um, I'm just wondering because yes. uh, you've got now it also for um, iOS, you know, React Native. I'm just wondering, like, where have you seen it being used in any other areas that are strange, you know, kind of ways that it's been used? Yeah. Um, so what React 14 does is that it separates uh, the idea of renderer. Uh, they they always wrote React uh, the way uh, that you could replace the renderer, but it was all inside of this one. Uh, library and people said like uh, it's not modular uh, <laughs> it's stuck it yeah it's all binded yeah, together mean, but uh, what Sebastian uh, often says and <laughs> every time I talk I'm quoting Sebastian all the time but uh, what he says is that uh, no abstraction is better than the wrong abstraction so what they really wanted is that um, don't split the packages until you're sure what exactly you want to split and what API you want to have so now that they have React Native, they figured out the parts that uh, need to be replaceable. And uh, with uh, React 14, they separated uh, the DOM part from the uh, base React library. And they are working, it's still work in progress. Uh, they are working on bringing uh, React Native to just be a renderer for the main React library. Because right now, React Native, uh, it's, it has its own fork of React inside with some changed uh, files, but they are working on uh, making it a renterer. And uh, you asked about um, exotic renterers. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen some really interesting experiments. Uh, there is a project called React Blessed, uh, which is a React interface to Blessed console library for Node.js. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and it lets you render, um, it lets you write a Node.js console applications, no browser, but with React. So that it's the same cool. conceptual model, but it works against the console. And another example, um, I, I think one of the first examples was called React Art. And uh, I think actually Sebastian wrote it, if I'm not mistaken. And it's an interface to uh, Art library, which can render to Canvas and WebGL and something else. And I saw yet another example with WebGL. Um, I think if you uh, if you renders for WebGL, and um, there was also also something else. <laughs> I mean, uh, a lot of people like are a lot of work going right on now. in this space, absolutely. And I think it's great that you know this this idea, you know, and, and I think you know that that's that you know the idea of the great you know the abstraction working out what's the point in breaking it up until we know exactly what we want to break up. I think that is a really pragmatic and a great way of thinking. Because, as you say, now we've got that problem. Oh, right, okay, we know that we want now to break it up in this way. Beforehand, they didn't have a didn't have that idea. And why not, you know, go for the problem? It's like having that, you know, the idea of the Twitter, you know, fail whale where, oh, it's great that you've now got this problem. You know, like, okay, now people are using it and they want to use it. We can now break it up in this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, when you were talking about, like, the backbone, so you had uh, React as the view layer, and then you slowly, you know, kind of looked into... You know, kind of, you wanted to change how you know your your kind of the infrastructure around you know the data mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that, and then you moved into Flux and mm-hmm. you spoke about Flux and and I'm just wondering. So for the complete beginner, again, similar to how we spoke about React, what is Flux then? Because I think people get confused by these terms. You know, you've got Flux and React yeah. and yeah. Um, so it's a way of 
it's a way of uh, applying changes to your data, I, th I think. Uh, so it feels the similar role to MVC. So if you use MVC, you're not using Flux. If you use Flux, you're probably not going to use MVC. So the, these two are conflicting. And uh, in MVC, if you come from traditional background where you have these models and views and controllers or just models and views, um, you're going to have a problem, I think, in a really complex application, you're going to have a problem with models having too much responsibilities and with models uh, doing things uh, that are hard to track. Like, for example, if you have an application where uh, you have a, a follow button for a user, so you can follow another user, but when you follow another user, it's important that both your uh, followed counter increments and the user's uh, followed counter increments, and that the Boolean fields are set correctly, that the request is sent to the server, and then if the request fails, it's important that you roll back uh, both of these increments, roll back both of these Boolean fields. So that's a lot of interaction. That's a and lot now, of, yeah, a lot of interactions, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and imagine if you, uh, if you can press uh, this button several times and several concurrent requests uh, come out and some of them fail, like, it's a mess. And you can't and replicate that, can you? I mean, that is, you know, again, it's this spaghetti code that you, you can't, you know, easily work through. Yeah, and most of the time, the complexity is due to async nature and it's due to models owning uh, their own state and being able to change other models. So usually I'd write this code as a user object uh, or user class having a follow method uh, with another user. And this follow method is just going to set fields on them, wait for the promise, and then reset these fields. And it's a mess because uh, it's hard to say uh, who's in control, like which user object changed which user object. and. Uh, why did they trigger a re-render and who's subscribed to them? So it's, it's a lot of um, cascading updates when one model changes another model which uh, changes a view that is subscribed to some other model. So it's a mess. It's very hard to track. Uh, it's very hard to reproduce bugs because uh, if you have a bug report that uh, your program is in some weird state, and even if you look at it, you can't say, how exactly did it get to this? That's it. How can I replicate this bug of, you know, getting into it so I can actually work out what the problem is? Yeah, because it may have been due to some race condition with some models setting fields on each other, and you can't really... Uh, I get it into the same state again. So that's a problem, and it's a problem only in complex applications. So when people look at uh, Flux uh, examples and they see to-do MVC or counters or, I don't know, something simple, and they're like, why do I have to write so much boilerplate code to get this to work? Like, isn't it 10 lines in jQuery and Backbone? But the problem is that those 10 lies don't scale. They don't scale to complexity. So what Flux attempts to solve is it attempts to solve this complexity. And the way it does that is that I think the most important principle of Flux is that the state is read-only. The models are read-only. There are no set methods on them. And that's the big idea of Flux. So... Uh, 
the, the things are called in a different way. Uh, you have stores instead of models. But what's important is that the views or network requests or any other code, uh, no code can change the data. So how does the application actually change? Because, of course, we need to change the data once in a while. Uh, so in Flux, uh, you have to describe the changes. So if you want something to happen, like you want the user to follow another user, you want to update that field, uh, what you do is it's called dispatching an action. But that really means that there is one um, event bus, a global event bus. It's called the dispatcher. So you pass an object to that event bus. And that object describes what happened. So how do you describe that a user followed another user? Uh, you can do that by a JavaScript object uh, that uh, includes the ID of the user who was followed, the ID of the user who followed that user, and um, what is the action type? Like what happened? User followed another user. So you have this type uh, constant type string inside that says type uh, is user followed another user, and that is just a JavaScript string. It's a constant. So anything that happens in the application, any mutation they want to make to your state, you have to describe as an object, and we have to dispatch it uh, to this global event bus called the dispatcher. And the models called uh, the stores in Flux term terminology, they listen to this dispatcher, and they are the only ones who can change their internal state. So they update themselves uh, by receiving news about what happened in the application uh, through actions. And now the views, they update themselves when uh, the uh, store state changes. So Flux kind of, uh, it straightens your, um, it forces your data mutation to, fo to follow a cycle. Like you have to express everything as a plain object. Yeah, the stores have to react to these uh, to these uh, objects, and the views have to react to the um, current state of the store. And the reason it wasn't popular before React is because uh, we didn't have a view framework that can update itself in response to arbitrary changes. So in classical MVC like Backbone, uh, you usually emit the event like change. Uh, name or change email, change something. You have to know what exactly changed to update uh, the view layer, like to have a jQuery, HTML, something. But in React, React doesn't really care what changed. It can efficiently re-render your view no matter what changed. So this is why uh, Flux works. Uh, the actions are fired, the stores update, and the view doesn't care what exactly changed. It just re-renders with a fresh state from the stores. So that's Flux in a nutshell. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. That that really is a great, you know, description of it. And, um, you know, I think, as you say, like the, the way that React kind of complements Flux so well, I don't think, because without React, would Flux be at all as popular or kind of be an option that you could use? Because, you know, you're kind of having to get away from the fact of knowing what's changed. Yeah, I, I don't think so, because it would have been much more complicated. So well, Flux is complicated enough, uh, but <laughs> adding it that on top of it, complexity. Would... yeah. But adding granular changes would be a mess. And, and did you find this that, that you um, in your when you were working with your backbone, that this was the problem that you had, and then Flux bring in, you know bringing Flux in helped resolve that problem. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I think a lot of people are confused about Flux because they didn't really have these problems in their apps. But we struggled with this every single day because our app was pretty complex. It was a single-page application. And this sheet uh, of different models would get out of sync all the time. Uh, it was really hard to... Um, have this backbone collection of models and another backbone collection of models that influence each other. And we have these nested API responses from the API server where it has duplicate uh, objects. And if the user edit, uh, edits some object, then it's going to appear uh, updated only in one place. But other objects that are uh, from the point of view of the application, they are the same, but they are different objects because they were parsed at different times in backbone, so they they don't reflect their current state. They get out of sync, and it was such a pain. Like I all, can imagine. <laughs> yeah, all parts of our app would get out of sync all the time, and this was actually how Facebook came to Flux too, because they had this chat um, uh, chat part of Facebook, and it um, it it was uh, split into several different parts of the UI, like the counter in the top bar that says how many unread messages you got, and the chat windows that have to mark messages as read, and the uh, chat bar with the uh, users, and so on. So there's many pieces of UI that have to reflect the exactly same state. So if these are different models, they will get out of sync. And they, people were complaining about this all the time. They would file bugs with Facebook, uh, like Facebook releases some kind of post on their uh, developer blog about some cool feature uh, they added, and people would write. <laughs> the top comment would be, fix the goddamn counter. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's nothing to do with me. I'm sorry. I've just done this yeah. awesome thing. <laughs> I don't mind you looking at this, but no, please fix that. That's the only thing we care about. Oh, yeah, dear. so so they had this problem too, and that's how they uh, kind of came to Flux. And Flux isn't really new; it's a variation of CQRS pattern. Uh, it's some kind of enterprise pattern uh, where you um, it's more related to database. Uh, it says that instead of uh, when you have a, an application that writes to the database, instead of uh, transforming some business logic. Uh, instead of doing some transformations and business logic in the app and then write into database, you should write to the database and then read from the database so that your uh, state is always consistent with what's in database. And Flux is the same thing. That's it, yeah, because um, I was going to ask that, like, what can, you know, in the past, like, has it, is it a derived? Because we always realize that everything's already been invented. Everything cool's invented. It's just, you know, yeah. we us bringing it up <laughs> now, you know, that's always, unfortunately, the way it is. And, um, you know, yeah, secret, you know, command query separation. And, and yes. I, you can see that, can't you, throughout it, that, oh, yeah, this is how they've kind of thought of it. And, and I mean, with Flux, you know, Flux came out and, um, you know, and it, it's an architectural pattern. So, as you say, similar to MVC. So, we need implementations of it and very much like mvc uh you know everyone has made an, a, their own mvc implementation yeah, you know yeah. i was wondering like you know what happened so to is there a definitive flux vanilla implementation that you know from facebook that people can use or do you have to you know can you go around and what 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 differs in this in this space um it's an interesting story it starts with facebook releasing uh flux package which at the moment included just uh, the dispatcher. 
So they had this wall of uh, text in the talks about how they're using Flux, and they release a single module, which is the dispatcher. But they suggest that you implement the stores and action creators and everything else that they described in the talks, like the way you like. And uh, they leave had, it up to the people. There we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they had um, they released some examples, uh, like a chat example uh, that uh, that showed the, the way they think about it. But uh, if you look at uh, the comments of the Facebook employees on Hacker News and podcasts and pretty much everywhere, you'd see that uh, what really happens is that um, they extracted this uh, flux pattern from the chat rewrite. And um, the way Facebook works is that they have an infrastructure team inside uh, that I hope to be part of. <laughs> and uh, this infrastructure team uh, acts, uh, it, it doesn't tell any anyone what to do. It can't force any other team to adopt some technology. So infrastructure team acts as an agency. They need to sell uh, their tech to the product teams. So what they did is that they started talking to many different product teams, like here's how Flux can make your life better. And some teams uh, adopted it, but of course every team had a different opinion on how to use Flux and how not to use it. So even inside Facebook, uh, you can find uh, different teams with opposing opinions on some pretty key uh, ideas on Flux. And uh, of course, when Flux released Dispatcher, um, people were a bit confused about how to write the stores because uh, the way uh, the examples worked is that uh, they were just event meters, but uh, that didn't work well with server rendering because in server rendering you don't want to have single tone stores. You want to have different stores for every request. You want to have different data for every request. And the reason Facebook did not uh, think about it much or did not complicate their examples with this is because Facebook doesn't use server rendering. So they don't, they kind of make it work, but they don't um, complicate their examples with it. And people started trying to uh, release Flux implementations that make server rendering easy. So that you, when you realize you want to add it, you don't have to rewrite half your app. And uh, I think early on, the popular one was Fluxible by Yahoo, who cared about server rendering. And um, the first wave of Flux frameworks, I think it was um, all about uh, getting rid of the boilerplate. Because uh, there was perception that uh, Flux forces you to write a lot of code. And people were looking at the ways to uh, cut it. And the first really popular um, Flux uh, implementation, uh, aside from Fluxible, was Reflux. And I, I don't mean to bash it. Uh, it, it lets you write uh, applications in a nice way, I suppose. Uh, but I think it's not really a Flux implementation. And I think that was the problem. Uh, when people initially heard the Flux, they did not realize the constraints that are important to Flux. So Reflux, uh, it uh, it paid the price. Uh, it it uh, removed some of the boilerplate of Flux but it also removed some of its nice properties. For example, if you have, um, if you describe every action as a plain JavaScript object, which some thought was an overkill, uh, but if you do that, 
you can actually record every action and you can serialize them and you can send them with your bug reports. So you can uh, get your application into the same state. And it was something Facebook actually used internally uh, when they had bugs in chat mess in the messenger inside uh, facebook.com. Uh, they would have opt-in uh, option for employees to file a bug. And when they file a bug, uh, the log of the actions is sent to the developers so they can reproduce uh, the same bug by rerunning these actions. And if actions are not first-class concept, if you don't uh, uh, have a concept of actions and they are not plain objects, uh, you, you can't do that. So this is something Reflux can do. So that that's interesting because, as you say, like if you just start saying, oh, now an action could be a function, then it all goes out the window. The idea of serializing this, being able to be in a you know, determinant state, just yeah, goes exactly. out the window. Yeah, exactly. And I think they didn't... One of the problems I saw is that they did not really... Uh, explain these properties of Flux. So they explained the architecture, but they did not quite explain what it allows. So uh, the next wave of Flux framework, I think it acknowledged that, and it did not try to cut the corners in this way. So the next wave, which I call the second wave of Flux frameworks, was all about um, they wrapped the dispatcher from Flux, Oh, so, so the initial ones weren't using the... Were, were the initial ones using the dispatcher from Facebook or are they making their own implementation of that too? I think a lot of initial Flux Leaps did not use the dispatcher uh, in an uh, effort to make it simpler. Uh, but eventually people saw... Uh, I think Fluxible was an exception. Fluxible uh, used the dispatcher from the beginning. But a lot uh, of like Flux frameworks uh, tried to uh, get away from it. But eventually they kind of figured out that they want some kind of compatibility with the Flux ecosystem. They want to try to build some tools on top of it like recording and replaying. And you need some kind of common code to bind it, right? So they wanted to standardize on using dispatcher and wrapping it uh, to um, add some syntax shortcuts or API shortcuts, but without hurting Fox. And I think it was also important from the marketing standpoint of uh, view, like you want to say that uh, we're not reinventing Flux. We're using the Facebook implementation. We're just adding some sugar on top of it. That's it. Like the kind of sugar you'd add in your app anyway. So yeah, this was the second wave of Flux frameworks. And I think the Fluxible Street and the most popular ones were Alt and Flamux. And Flamux was the one that I really liked, although Alt uh, is really nice too. Uh, I personally, I find that uh, Alt has a lot of API. And in my opinion, that's not a very good thing because there are just so many ways to do, to do uh, the same thing in Alt. And uh, if you use it, you kind of get your code. Um, you, you invest in, in these APIs. You invest in them, staying around. You invest in your team, learning about them. And I, I don't mean this is a bad thing, but it's something I personally try to avoid. Uh, I'm really afraid of investing into APIs. And that's why I liked Backbone and React, because unlike Ambular, uh, they have small APIs. That's it. Easy to understand. You can learn it in about half hour and you can yeah, get Yeah, and get, easy to throw away if you realize that it doesn't work. 
So staying with some API that you can get away from was a real uh, a real bummer for me. I, I don't want to get to have this problem. And uh, I liked Flamux for this reason because it had a really small API compared to many Flux implementations, and it it treated async uh, as first class uh, concept. It embraced uh, the promises and the uh, ES7 async await syntax. So you could write async action creators with with async await experimental syntax or using promises, which is pretty much the same thing. And it looked really nice. So I liked Flamux. But uh, I think that's the best we had. Uh, and later I was working on my talk for React Europe. And uh, I wanted to showcase some cool stuff uh, like hot reloading and time travel. And I wanted to figure out how to fit it into uh, Flux without forcing using the user to write any code, uh, any extra code for these developer features. And it's also similar to how uh, Flux frameworks, they allowed for universal uh, applications, the uh, apps that run on the server and on the client. But there is this problem of transferring all the state from the server to the client. So we need to serialize it to JSON and somehow hydrate into the uh, Flux stores at the client. So uh, many Flux frameworks uh, force you to write methods like hydrate and dehydrate uh, to implement this kind of thing. And it seemed artificial to me, like uh, we already know that the store has a state. Why do you have to write special methods to put it, uh, put in, it in that out? state? That's it. Yeah, and uh, I think Alt uh, go, got the closest uh, uh, to uh, getting it right uh, because it didn't force the user to write any code. It just said if yours, if the state of your stores is uh, j just JavaScript objects that can be serialized, uh, Alt lets you uh, has a two JSON and like uh, load JSON or something like this uh, methods to just load the state for all stores, and I like that. And when I was working on my talk, I just I, I tried to use different Flux frameworks, but none of them allowed uh, the kind of uh, culture loading I wanted to implement. So, uh, if you saw that there was a tweet, uh, I, I tweeted, <laughs> yeah, like, oh no, am I really writing my own Flux framework? Because I was trying not to do that for you. Try so hard not to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was hoping someone would write something I would use, and Flamux was the best choice for me for uh, a lot of time, but then I realized it just can't do what I wanted to do. So I uh, wrote something, I, and I had this uh, pun in my head, like uh, I was thinking about the uh, flux as uh, a reduce operation over time. Uh, like if you know uh, the reduce signature is uh, uh, accumulator value and it returns the accumulator, uh, array reduce uh, function, I mean. And uh, a lot of people describe flux as uh, this function, like your stores they accumulate the state in response to the actions. So it's not like you use reduce uh, method, but it kind of, this, it, it has follows the same, same ilk, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I was thinking of taking this further, like what if your uh, flux store was actually not a store, but a reducer function. And uh, I was looking for implementation that do that, and I didn't find uh, any. So, uh, that there was Nuclear.js, which was kind of similar, but it was not exactly as I wanted it to be, and it did not support hotel loading the way I wanted to implement it. So 
I had this pun in my head, like, oh, we take uh, the flux and we take the reducers, so we get redux, and redux is actually even a word in English, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, was re I think that was the main reason I actually created this project, is that it just, uh, the pun felt right. <laughs> <laughs> so I made it into an actual project instead of a demo, and... Uh, Early on, I decided I might not make it in time for the conference. Yeah, how, how long was this before the conference? Uh, I was I was thinking about it a lot, uh, but uh, I was busy with React D&D, the Dragon Talk project. Yep. So I started working on it uh, the month before the conference. And I was very uh, anxious about it. Uh, I was uh, really scared because... I, when I submitted the proposal for the conference, uh, the cultural loading with time travel, uh, to be honest, I had no idea uh, what I'd be presenting. So I was thinking some kind of uh, time travel with the React straight going uh, forward and backwards. But the, the more I thought about it, the less sense it made because uh, the components uh, contain each other. And if you just time travel one component straight, you want to travel time travel all of its child components straight. So it doesn't make any sense. And uh, the more I worked on Flux uh, applications, I was thinking, like, uh, what I really want to do is I want to time travel the Flux stores, and I want to hot reload them, and I want to see the current state change as I change the logic of these stores. So this is what I was after. And uh, I was really afraid I wouldn't make it in time. Uh, and I wanted... Um, I wanted to ask somebody to collaborate, and I reached out to Andrew Clark, uh, the Flamox guy, and he was very supportive. And he, uh, he, I think he saved the project because he uh, offered help in implementing extension points like middleware and store enhancers. No need to go into the detail, but that's what uh, made Redux so. Um, it w it's what made its ecosystem possible. Because in, in Redux, we have an ecosystem of tools around it, uh, which is not the case for Flux, unfortunately, because Flux frameworks all have different contracts yeah. that are incompatible. Uh, so in Redux, we, Andrew really helped solidify the vision, and uh, he helped to come up with an API that made sense and that made time travel possible eventually. And... Um, so this was our joint project. <laughs> and uh, now people people sometimes describe it as Flux, and sometimes they describe it as not Flux, uh, because uh, Bill Fisher, the creator of Flux, he is, thinks Redux is Flux, because it follows the same idea that state uh, plus action returns the new state. That's it. Uh, yep. Yeah, and the uh, the rest is implementation details. And uh, some other people think it's not Flux because uh, in Flux you have Dispatcher. And in Redux, it turns out you don't actually need the Dispatcher uh, because it's just functions call and other functions. And uh, I, I need to note, uh, this is a disclaimer that I make every time, that yeah, I, I think uh, Redux was influenced a lot by the Elm architecture. Elm is a language created by Evan Saplitsky. Uh, uh, and... Um, Elm architecture is a document he wrote about how uh, to create applications in Elm, and uh, he was influenced by Flux uh, himself. Uh, and I think uh, I read it some time before creating Redux, and I didn't get it fully. Uh, 
uh, which uh, you can see by the alpha versions of Redux that were not like Elm architecture at all, and that was a problem. Uh, and Andrew Clark actually helped make it uh, more like Elm architecture. Uh, but yeah, credits, uh, credit where it's due, I'm pretty sure I was influenced by this. And later on, I alluded a lot to Elm in the documentation, so that was a big influence. And uh, uh, the way Redux uh, kills the dispatcher and just uses function uh, functions is similar to how Elm Architecture does it. Yeah, because at the because you have a single root node, don't you, or single root store that or, yeah. a, a reducer that then goes down, and you can then build these up because they're just functions. You can compose it all together into and yeah, that allows. Exactly. Yeah, and and one one interesting thing because of, of looking at all these things, and it's very cool the way that you're able to work out if something's changed based on you know if you're using this immutability, you can just check if the reference is the same, and oh, I know it's the same, it's the same data you know underneath it. Um, I'm just wondering like the performance implications. Have you found that in production at all? Have you you been able to release something in production that you've been able to see? Does it does it does it does it, does it perform well uh, at scale? Uh, yeah, I think it performs uh, fairly well. I haven't written uh, large applications with it, but I heard feedback, feedback from some people who did, and uh, they say it's fine when the, uh, of course, uh, copying uh, large arrays or large objects uh, is a problem, but you need to remember that uh, when we say a single application, a single object describing application state, like that's not entirely accurate, is it? Because objects to reference other objects. Yeah. So it's not like you have some giant ob object you clone all the time. That's not what happens. Uh, on the Only the parts that you need to change are copied. And again, if you have an array of thousands of objects and you need to add a new item to the array, you're not copying these uh, uh, thousands of ob objects. You just copy the array and it keeps the references to all existing objects, but you have a new object in the array now. So it's important to understand the reference semantics of JavaScript here. But uh, yeah, of course, uh, often copying, like if you dispatch uh, tens of actions per second and you have really large data sets, you're better off using something like Immutable.js, which has uh, b better uh, memory uh, characteristics because of structural sharing. And of course, you need to keep in mind like what parts of my state tree change uh, how do I uh, make it more efficient? But I don't think it's really different from Flux in this regard because um, if you're really uh, insistent on it, you can mutate state and Redux. We just don't encourage it. But if you have a perf bottleneck that you have no other way of uh, fixing, yeah, you can mutate the state or you can use multiple stores. Like these are escape hatches that you can do I if like you that. have to. I like but, that, the idea of the escape hatches, you know, again, you, you're bringing that into it. Yeah, but uh, it's not really something you do often. And if you dispatch uh, hundreds of actions per second, you need to rethink uh, how you use Redux because a uh, user can't click a uh, hundred times per second and the network requests can't come a hundred times per second. So there's somewhere you're uh, over-dispatching. <laughs> Yeah, so, so in your thinking of the design, maybe you need to review that as, as you know, instead of blaming yeah, the Yeah, like maybe you need to have some kind of a loop, uh, animation frame loop where you dispatch actions. You can batch them. There are uh, tools in the ecosystem to batch several actions as a single dispatch. So yeah, you, you can do all that. And um, and with this project Redux, um, have you found that the, the Flux team in Facebook have kind of, you know, what, how has it kind of, like, 
influenced other Flux implementations and how people think about it? Uh, I think uh, a lot of people refer to Redux as the Flux framework to end uh, Flux frameworks, uh, kind of in a jokingly way, but I haven't seen any new major implementations uh, after Redux. So there, there are some Flux implementations that elaborate on the uh, Redux ideas or try to get away with uh, less boilerplate as they consider, but I haven't seen them uh, pick up a large following. So I think the ecosystem really helped. Like, uh, finally, we have a Flux framework that you can write plugins for, and they work, and people that can compose them, and that's a big deal because it wasn't possible before. People didn't do that. So that's what's keeping a lot of people there. And another reason is that it's really tiny. Uh, if you remove the developer warnings and the comments, <laughs> uh, you can actually feed uh, the whole code of Redux in 99 lines. That is impressive. So, yeah, that, that that's one of the reasons people really like that they can fully get it. Yeah, like that's they it. Can they can look at the source in, in one sitting and understand it as opposed to, yeah, and no, this black box that they can't, you know, get yeah, yeah. slowly. You, you don't need to debug its guts. And there is no asynchrony in guts. Like, you don't really have to um, uh, try to understand some complex logic. Uh, so... I think that's the reason why uh, there haven't been major Flux frameworks after that. So uh, I've seen people converge on Redux. I've seen people uh, using uh, Flux uh, package again because Flux released what they call Flux utils. Yeah, uh, I know it's called re just... uh, reduced stores and things like that. Yeah, these are just uh, the, from what I understand, these are the tools that the different Facebook teams agreed on having. And uh, they are pretty much the same stuff that the uh, most Flux frameworks had at the time, like uh, 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 a, a container component for binding React components to the Flux store, or um, a reduced store, which lets you write uh, a store with a reducer, which is similar to Redux, yep. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't have the benefits of Redux, because if you still have multiple stores, you can't easily compose them. But... Yeah, I think this is where we ended up. We have Flux, Redux, and we have also we have a lot of people who are uh, who now understand Flux enough to uh, actually not use it at all, and they are jumping to uh, hand-rolled Flux using Rx, for example, because Rx provides a much better asynchronous story. So Flux lets you streamline the mutations. Uh, by introducing a single synchronous point, point where you describe mutations as plain objects. But uh, Rx lets you uh, straighten the asynchronous code. So if you have a lot of um, requests you have to make, some of these needs to be cancelled by each other, and you need to transform their values and aggregate them and so on, you better use Rx because that's what it's for. It's not like the reactive time, uh, functional programming. Paradigm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And by the time you use it, uh, you might not need Flux anymore because uh, the both Redux and Flux, uh, they kind of correspond to uh, a Rex scan operator. So it's very similar to scan. And uh, like if you understand the Rex, uh, you can implement Flux in two lines. So it's not a big deal. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, and because all this has been open sourced, and, and another open source project you do is the React Hotloader. 
yeah. um and i just want a, a, a kind of a side note like how did you get into the open source world like were you in the open source world when it, the c-sharp stuff using NuGet and things like that or was it really when you got into the javascript world that you kind of embraced it and started contributing uh i didn't um i didn't participate in the NuGet uh, stuff because it was i think it got popular after i left c-sharp and uh, I had one, uh, I open-sourced one library in C-Sharp, but that was it, and it wasn't very popular because uh, C-Sharp wasn't really um, an open-source kind of thing back then. Yeah, uh, they, people... they've slowly, Microsoft has slowly started to make it more, you know, appealing. Yeah, it, it wasn't popular. Uh, and uh, I think my first, uh, my first popular project was React Loader, yeah, Uh I tried to contribute to a few projects, but just by uh, a little. I wasn't comfortable with the build tools and the uh, all the build straps and the Travis and all that kind of stuff. It eluded me. Uh, so I started slowly. But then I had this idea. I saw Webpack. Uh, when I ported the project to Webpack, I read about hot model replacement uh, and the ability to swap out parts of code in real time. And on the other hand, I was curious about React, uh, and uh, I thought that maybe I can make them work together. And I had a very dirty proof of concept uh, where uh, I uh, added a lot of junk code inside React to make it work, and I uh, specifically did things that worked inside my demo. But anyway, I recorded a small demo video uh, saying like, have you seen stuff like this where I just edit my application, uh, press save and it updates without destroying the scroll position, the straight, everything just works. And I shared this video, I think it was six in the morning. Uh, my my wife was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, get back to bed. <laughs> I'm going to die like in your forties if you keep doing like that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I, I just, I, I was very, um, I was very keen on making this happen. And when I got to proof of concept, I can record a screencast of it. And I shared it um, on Twitter. I registered a Twitter account when I saw pretty much everyone on the Twitter. I had many, maybe like 20 followers back then. <laughs> and uh, so Christopher, uh, uh, Christopher, I'm not sure, Sh Shado, uh, anyway, the Vijux guy, uh, uh, from the React uh, core team, uh, he, he's a really nice guy. He's very um, he's very friendly and very um, embracing the ecosystem and helping everyone see the new cool stuff. That's very cool. He's uh, he's watching out for everything. I, I can't imagine how he keeps <laughs> up with everything that's happening. But he's a robot, is <laughs> yeah. But he retweeted me and. Uh, it went like crazy, so people kept retweeting it, and I kept getting followers. And I, I realized, yeah, people want this. People want to make this happen. So um, I, I couldn't work in it during my work time, so I took a vacation. And uh, at first, I didn't want to write any code, but then I, you know, I would swim and. Uh, lie at the beach and then i realized oh now i need to do this that's it you got it in your head it's a niggling in your head that you need to do this and, yes. and so, so hot loader so that is built on webpack and just for the audience what is webpack uh, like a, a kind of a yeah webpack uh, it's a tool um you probably it's 2015 so you probably uh, use something to bundle your javascript code 
and um, you don't write everything in a single file, do you? Or um, if you if you have a large application, it get it gets really tedious to uh, add every file as a script tag because you may have if you have modular code, you might have a hundred or five hundred of these files, and you need to remember their order because they're dependent that's it, on they're another. Dependent on, yep. Yeah, so that's a pain. That's a big pain, and um, you might use something like Required JS. Uh, uh, that's what I used at first, but it's not a very good tool. Um, I think you know, it was good at the time, but it's not very modern. So Webpack is. Uh, you might have heard of Browserify. So the Webpack and Browserify they kind of do the same thing. Uh, they let you uh, bundle your code. Uh, compile it into a single file from many JavaScript files. And unlike uh, simple concatenation, uh, they actually understand the dependencies. So uh, you don't need to think about the order of the files. They figure it out by uh, how you require files from other files, by your dependency graph. And uh, of course, you can use uh, transpilers with them, which is pretty popular in React world. Uh, so React has this JSX optional syntax, which is pretty popular, although some people hate it. But anyway, uh, this is how uh, React kind of um, kind of teach taught uh, the developers to use transpilers. And when Babel came out, it was a really easy switch. So now a lot of people are using Babel, which uh, lets you transpile ES6 code to ES5. And Webpack is just a tool that. Uh, does this for you. It lets you specify the transformations, just like Browserify. It lets you bundle all JavaScript to a single file. It lets you apply plugins like Uglify uh, or uh, like uh, adding revisions uh, to the file names. So it's pretty much a kitchen sink approach to how do I get from my source to something I can ship as uh, the part of the production build. So that's it. That's brilliant, yeah. And, and so with Webpack, and then it's the hot module replacement that it was able to do. So essentially that just finds out what's changed and only emit that change to the server uh, or to, yeah. to, to the browser or to, you know. Yeah, it was um, the creator of Webpack, uh, Tobias Coppers, which is, he's just a machine. I don't know where <laughs> when he sleeps. Uh, I, I think everybody's really nervous. So like if he burns out, <laughs> who's going to do all this webpack uh, development? Because he's the he's like the the force behind all the project, and he's really interesting because he he kind of likes uh, to go into some experimental directions. Uh, so some I remember somebody requested uh, an issue like it would be cool if webpack could compile uh, the changes. Uh, like when you change uh, your code in the editor, it would be cool if Webpack could emit just those files uh, as separate uh, JavaScript files, and then you could have some runtime that decides what to do with them. And Tobias was like, uh, yeah, that sounds cool, so I'm going to write uh, a specification for that and then implement this. <laughs> and he called it hot module replacement. Uh, he didn't document it. Um, it's kind of hot. Uh, that, that, that's the... Uh, biggest complaint about Webpack that its docs are essentially a wall of text of everything that support it. And when beginners come to it, they're like, I can't understand this kind of stuff. But uh, after a while, if you see uh, the uh, projects using Webpack, you kind of get a feel for what people actually use there. 
and what they don't use and how you use it. And it's really powerful as you do anything you want. Uh, and uh, people often contrast it with Browserify, where Browserify has this modular approach. You need to use different models for different things. And Webpack is like uh, everything is bundled into a single project, and some people hate that. But anyway, Webpack was the first to came up with this hot model replacement. Uh, they, there are some projects now trying to implement this uh, in Browserify. I'm not sure how complete they are, but it's really cool that we have uh, conversions on some kind of API for that in different uh, bundlers. Uh, I'm really hoping that eventually React Native Packager might get support for that. That would be sweet. Uh, but so, uh, sorry, what was your question? I'm oh, no, so, so it's just yeah, saying what, you know, Webpack is. And as you say, it's this, you know, and the hot module replacement. And, and, and you use that then. So with the React hot loader, you were able to take advantage of that then to, to, to you know, apply it to the React stuff? Yeah, I remember reading um, when I was maybe 15 years old, uh, I bought a book on Erlang, which is a language uh, used for, for networks, like JSM Towers uh, use Erlang. Uh, and uh, it's a functional language. It has a great concurrency model. And it has a lot of interesting decisions there. And uh, one of those interesting things about Erlang, I remember striking me as unusual is that it actually has a mechanism for replacing the code on the fly. So if you have a GSM tower serving uh, millions of customers, you don't want to go offline, right? So uh, what Erlang lets you do is that it lets you replace parts of your app as your app works, and your app doesn't have doesn't have to stop because uh, Erlang is a functional language, and as long as you avoid local state. Uh, you can just replace the function with another function, right? And so the, the code is going to call this uh, new version of the function now. So this is something Erlang supports. Uh, this is something ClojureScript uh, supports uh, via a tool called um, uh, FigWheel, developed by uh, Bruce Holman. You should watch his talk, uh, Live Development ClojureScript with FigWheel. It's uh, really... Uh, He's very nice to look at, and he's a really um, kind guy. He's so um, he's so warm. Uh, I really like I like watching his talks. And so, um, anyway, I, I remember this passage about the replacement of code and on the fly. And uh, when I read about Webpack's hot model replacement system, that's exactly what they were describing. And uh, Tobias even had a way to deal with. Side effects. So in JavaScript, you have side effects, you have mutable state. So you need some kind of way for the uh, updated module to dispose of its, uh, like undo everything that it has done so that the next version of the code, when it executes, can do the game. And he only used hot model replacement for CSS. So it's interesting that in Webpack, the uh, CSS uh, live editing support. It doesn't work uh, with some browser plugin or some kind of, uh, I don't know, extra code for your app. Uh, it just works on top of the same mechanism. So you CSS becomes JavaScript that inserts that CSS, and the JavaScript code takes advantage of hot model replacement API. And I figured out that, yeah, I can try to make this work for React. I can try to make it work for React by replacing the render method on the fly with a new version and forcing the re-render. And React knows what to do. Like, it doesn't care 
if it's the data that changed or the implementation of the random method that changed. It just updates the DOM. That is very, very cool. And, and, and you got this proof of concept out. And, and I know then you say, because uh, on a, another podcast, a software engineering daily one that you were talking about that, you know, it was, there was, it wasn't under test. And uh, you wanted, you know, to be any change that happened in React, then you'd have to, you know, go and fix it and things like that. So you took some time out and you've you've been working on uh, the kind of successor of that, which is Hot Transform. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how's that going and, and the progress on that? Yeah, it's it's kind of in a phase right now where it's work in progress because um, React 14 really screwed up <laughs> some plans for us. <laughs> like, I mean, thanks, React. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, these are good changes for React, but they are very hard for me uh, because I'm kind of um, working around React instead of working with React. And it's a temporary measure that I have to take because React doesn't provide the hooks I need. And I'm not sure if it can even provide them in the future or if it's unfeasible on some level. I don't know. But uh, I hope to work on it when I'm in Facebook. But for now, I have to work around React. And so... Um, there are, there are some problems with uh, the way React Loader worked, and I tried to um, get around these problems by using static analysis. So uh, I have this project called React Transform, which is uh, actually an umbrella project for several projects. Um, uh, they are all... Uh, s- the main idea is that it lets you specify in some configuration file a set of transforms to instrument all your React components. So it, it, it gives your React components to the transformers you specify, and they can do something with them. And uh, in case of hot model replacement, it's going to add hot model replacement code to them, uh, which is like a successor to React Loader. And I was also interested in instrumenting them with try-catch instructions so that if your render method shows throws your application doesn't stop it just it just displays a pop-up like in react native you see this red screen of death so i kind of wanted the same a workflow for a normal react where you see the error you fix it in your code and it immediately works again and you don't have to refresh uh and um it's a re- replacement for React Loader because I want React Loader to be uh, I want this uh, kind of thing to be agnostic for, of Webpack. Uh, I wanted just to rely on Hot Model Replacement API, which is now possible to make work with Browserify. So I wanted to uh, get away from it. But as I need static analysis, I had to add a dependency on Babel. And Babel just shipped another major, Babel <laughs> 6, which again, I was waiting for it because I needed some hooks from Babel 6 because its plugin API is better. But right now I'm in this weird stage where um, I don't have time to work on React Transform right now. I'm different with, uh, I'm busy with ACAD videos for Redux. So uh, it's waiting for React 14 uh, support. It's waiting for React. That is to say, you can use it with React 14. But it doesn't hot reload uh, functional components which are new to React 14. So a full support for React 14 is coming, but not right now. Uh, Babel 6 support is coming, but again, I'm busy. Sorry, I'm just a single person. I can't do everything at once. I have to focus on one thing. So uh, Babel 6 support is coming, but uh, not right now. I hope to uh, make it work uh, sometime in this month. But well, I don't blame. And also with the move, obviously now to London and all this kind of yeah, stuff, I mean, it must it, be it, a, a busy time. It, a busy time. Yeah, I just I just spent the, the last evening filing the paperwork, <laughs> and I, it, it's crazy. 
So yeah, please bear with me. Um, wait some time for this to happen. No, absolutely. And, and and technically under the hood. So how does it do this? Does it proxy? Because I've been reading, you, you kind of wrap these objects, you'll wrap these components and you proxy the methods around so you can maintain the state. Yeah, so that's the big problem. And I'm not sure how to solve it more elegantly. But the big problem is that React or reconciliation algorithm, it works the way that uh, if you're if you're rendering component A and then you're rendering component B in the same place, React is going to kill the state because obviously the component changed. So it needs to kill the state and initialize the new component. But in case of hot model replacement, if you're not using browser APIs, like there's a project called AMOC that uses uh, browser debugger APIs, Chrome APIs to attach to the browser and the hot replace uh, the code without changing the function identities. This is not what we do. We don't want to depend on the browser APIs and browser vendors because they're um, a pain to work with if they yep. break they something. They will change, yep. yeah. Yeah, you're going to maintain it. It's hard to run tests uh, for this infrastructure. You have to run browser builds and it's hard to uh, co to contribute to this. And uh, if it breaks someday, you need to ask uh, browser maintainers for a few months to fix it and uh, be glad if they fix it, right? So uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to depend on it, just like FigWill doesn't depend on it. Uh, but this is the problem because uh, when the code reevaluates, the component is technically different. So it's the same component conceptually, it's the same button, but it's the different function because it was evaluated at a different time, it's a different function identity. And React thinks like, oh, we're rendering something different, so I'm just going to kill all the straight beneath. And that's a problem because you have existing instances, these instances have their own straight, they have their own fields, they have some kind of timeouts attached to them, like they have intervals, all this kind of stuff is just wiped out. And this makes hot reloading useless for many real-world applications. So this was my big constraints. I need to keep the instances. I need to uh, somehow attach the new behavior to the old instances. And this is why I wrap every React class. And in the future, I will wrap uh, functional components too, just to preserve the identity of the function. So every function is actually a proxy now. And when the code is reevaluated, it's that exact proxy again, but pointing to the new code. So that's how it works. It just proxies every method, every class, and it tries to, uh, like, you know, like railroad switching tracks. This is just like React Loader and React Transform, how they work. But yeah, it's a pain because uh, it means you have to somehow figure out if this class is a React component so you can wrap it. And you need to somehow wrap it, which means operation on the uh, on the uh, syntax tree. So you have to depend on something like Babel. And I know uh, I talked with Sebastian Magbich about this, and he's like, uh, "Hey, this thing sucks. <laughs> That's not how you should do it." And I'm, yeah, I know. <laughs> You're trying so, your best. Trying your best. Yeah, I'm trying my best, but uh, I have these constraints, and uh, I don't want to compromise on them. So any better solution. Should also um, should also satisfy these constraints. So I hope to work with React team on that and figuring out uh, if they can help me or if I can help myself. And it's promising. Uh, perhaps we'll have some kind of API to uh, uh, dehydrate all the state 
from the component tree and then replace uh, the DOM with new instances and somehow hydrate it again. I don't know. Maybe we'll have something official figured out. That yeah. sounds cool. And and thank you again, man, for coming and taking the time. I think I've taken up a lot of your time at the moment. No, it's not a problem. <laughs> um, it's been really, really, really good. Um, and, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the fact you'll be in London soon. So, so when is that? Have you got a, a date planned or are you uh, planning plan it by yeah, air still? Uh, I'm supposed to start uh, the 1st of the December. Uh, I'm kind of not sure uh, if... Um, I also need to work on my on getting the U.S. visa because uh, I'll have to travel uh, to U.S. as part of bootcamp program, and my application is scheduled on November 10th, so it's like very pressing. Uh, but yeah, definitely hope to uh, be there in December. Well, that's awesome. Hopefully, catch you at some meetups will be great yeah. to, uh, to talk. <laughs> and 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 the final question really is: so you know, we've spoken a lot about all this stuff now, and and for the complete beginner. They're probably very scared or, you know, the, the, the ecosystem's changing. It's very vibrant. Um, I'm just wondering, do you have any resources that you'd point people to? You know, would you point them to the Facebook? You know, would you say go straight into Redux? What what kind of thing would you say to a complete beginner that's getting into this React Flux world? Um, I'm working on the ACAD videos for Redux. So they're not out yet, but by the time you listen to this podcast, um, you may have to wait a few days and they'll be up. I will definitely um, add them into the show notes. They will be, that sounds very cool. Yeah, so uh, I really want, uh, I really try to focus on um, getting the basics right there. So it's it's a series for complete Redux beginners that have no experience with uh, React. And uh, I'm not explaining the basics of React there, but uh, I'm explaining the basics of Redux without... Um, without really depending on React much. So you can definitely watch these videos if you're interested in Redux. And um, I know Akhead also has a lot of quality videos about the React basics. And uh, I, I mean, I love this website. Uh, I I think Flux clicked for me after I watched the Akhead video. So I highly recommend you try these out. Absolutely, that'd be cool. They, they, there are no bullshit. Uh, there is no waving around. It's all very practical. And uh, they uh, these folks, they really value your time. But beyond that, um, you, I think you want to go through the Thinking in React tutorial, which is on the uh, Facebook React documentation website. And I, I really... Um, I really mean it when I say uh, go through it because it's it's a tutorial. You're supposed to to follow it and to actually do the things that uh, are described there because it it explains the most important aspect of React, which is that the state is owned by some component and it travels exclusively top down. So this is a a, a big part of React and Flux is uh, is like an extension of that. So you want to understand that. And other than that, I suggest that um, I think the most, um, I learned the most from following uh, people on Twitter. So I think uh, if you're serious about um, keeping up with what's happening in React world, you should follow all the React core team. And I mean, uh, Sebastian Magbich, uh, Ben Alpert, uh, Christopher Viju, <laughs> and a lot of other folks. And I have an article called My React List, so you can just Google it my React list, where we're going to find uh, references to like 50 <laughs> uh, 
people who are either related to React or uh, who are who are the follow uh, who are the people followed by the people who are, are, yes exactly <laughs> so uh, I suggest you follow these people because uh, you will get a much better sense of what's going on and of course follow Dan as well because he yeah is you, you can follow me too yeah, absolutely <laughs> uh, well thank you so much Dan for your time it's been a really great podcast and yeah you've given some really valuable information that I know I have I've taken on board and I'm hoping the audience will too so and I really hope yeah London and all that goes well and the US visa goes well and yeah we should see you in a meetup and maybe come on the show again if you're if you're free at all <laughs> all right thank you very much for having me okay then audience well it's been another episode of three devs and a maybe so um yeah for, until next week goodbye bye 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 You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.